Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group. For more than 20 years, I've been entrusting my personal estate planning and asset protection to the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group, and you should too. Go to jmvlaw.com by July 15th and mention my name and you'll get 50% off your first consultation. Today's podcast is also sponsored by True Bill. $5 here, $10 there. Those monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you forget about them. Get your subscriptions under control with Truebill. Go right now, truebill.com slash gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. Traders came back from a three-day holiday weekend in a selling mood. The Dow Jones was initially down about 450 points on this last trading day of the month of May. But then the index managed to go positive. But by the end of the day, all four of the major stock market indexes did finish lower on the day. But it was a mixed bag for the month. The Dow, the S&P, and the Russell 2000 all managed positive closes on the month. Although for the Dow and the S&P, the gain was negligible. The Dow, for example, was up just 13 points. The S&P up about one point. These are tiny percentages. The Russell 2000 did manage a slightly bigger gain. It was 0.4 on the month. 
Only the NASDAQ had a more significant decline. It was down 1.6%, and that was mainly on the weakness of big tech. And I don't think this is a good sign for the bulls that the leaders of the bull market are finally the laggards in this new bear market. Now, yes, technically not officially a bear market yet for the S&P or the Dow, but the Russell 2000 and more importantly, the NASDAQ are in fact in bear markets. And even though we didn't get a big sell-off in May, that's only because of a rally in the last week or so of May, a big bear market rally, a lot of short covering. You know, investors began the month of May with some heavy selling. There is an old Wall Street adage, sell in May and go away. And a lot of traders began the month of May with a lot of selling, but then we got this bounce. I think it's a big sucker rally. A lot of people think the lows are in, the bear market is over. In reality, the bear market has probably just begun, especially for the riskiest end of the technology spectrum, the type of stocks that are in the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation ETF. I'm talking about companies that have no earnings. A lot of these companies were recent IPOs that basically came public on a hope of a dream. They don't really have any earnings, but they were able to take advantage of the hysteria and the hype that goes along with the mania and all of the cheap money that was coming from the Federal Reserve. But the ARK Innovation ETF, even with the rally, still finished the month of May down 6.6%. Of course, the worst performers during May were the cryptocurrencies. It was a bloodbath in May, despite today's rally. In fact, today's rally started yesterday. Of course, the U.S. markets were closed for a holiday, but the cryptocurrency markets, they never close. They're open 24-7. So the rally in Bitcoin really began on Monday and continued on Tuesday, with Bitcoin not only surging back above 30000 but surging above 32,000. Now, we didn't hold above 32,000 for long, although who knows, maybe it will be back above 32,000 by the time you listen to this podcast. It's anybody's guess, but in my mind, it's more likely it's going to be lower. In fact, it's around 31,700 as I am recording this podcast slightly after the markets closed here on a Tuesday. Now, I did initially expect Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to really collapse once we had a decisive break below 30,000 in Bitcoin. We had a decisive break below, but we haven't had the collapse. Now, I still think the collapse is coming. Maybe it's had a reprieve for a bit. We're going to sucker in some more buyers who are convinced that 30,000 is the low, and so they're piling in. But I think, again, this is a bear market. This is a bear market rally in risk assets, and cryptos are the riskiest of the risk assets. You know, I was watching on CNBC today, and they were so excited about this Bitcoin rally. You know, when Bitcoin is getting killed, they really don't even want to talk about it. I mean, they feel compelled to mention it, but they try to downplay it, and they generally don't have a lot of guests when Bitcoin is down. But today, when Bitcoin was up, it was nonstop pumping, guest after guest is coming on, and they're asking their opinion on this rally and what's going on in crypto as if the people they're asking are unbiased. Everybody they invite on their air to talk about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies works 
in the cryptocurrency industry. In fact, I guess that's what you need to do to be an expert in crypto. You have to work for a crypto company, but of course, all the people who work for crypto companies are bullish on crypto. After all, if they weren't bullish on crypto, they wouldn't work for crypto companies. In fact, most of the people who come on CNBC don't just work for those companies. They founded those companies. They're the main person at that company. So they're there to talk their book. You know, ironically, the people who are the biggest experts on crypto, the ones who understand it the most are the ones who don't work in the crypto industry. Because if you understand crypto, you know it's not going to work. You know it's going to fail. And so if you know it's not going to work, then why bother starting a crypto business? It's only the people who are completely clueless, who don't understand that it's not going to work. Those are the ones that start these businesses. And so they're the least qualified to actually comment on what's going on. But of course, those are the only ones that get invitations from CNBC. Now, of course, fool's gold wasn't the only thing that dropped actual gold the real stuff also had a bad month of may gold dropped about 60 dollars during the month of may so that's a little bit more than a three percent drop and gold stocks did even worse down again today quite a bit but the gdx finished the month of may down about 9.4 percent surprisingly the juniors actually held up a little bit better they were down 8.8 percent on the month. Now, one of the interesting things about this sell-off was what happened today. Because before the market opened, there was a buyout announced in the space. You had South Africa's gold field, symbol GFI, announced that it was buying Canadian gold mining company Yamada. And it was an all-stock deal. And shareholders of Yamada, for each share of Yamada they own, they're going to get 0.6 of a share of Goldfields, which tanked by 23.5% on the news. Now, it's normal that when one company announces that it's buying another, that the acquiring company has a drop in its stock price, but not nearly this much. And in fact, if you look at the rise in Yamada, It was only up 3.7% on the day despite being taken over. And here's something really interesting because I happen to own both of these stocks personally and both of these stocks are owned by our separately managed accounts and by our gold fund. And I'm going to talk about these stocks today not to make a recommendation and the fact that I own these stocks should not be construed as a recommendation because I'm not allowed to make stock recommendations per FINRA, right, which is the private company that the U.S. government forces me to be a member of in order to be a stockbroker. So again, I think the whole thing is unconstitutional, but I don't want to make this podcast about FINRA. I'm just letting people know why I can't give recommendations on this podcast. So I'm talking about these stocks just to illustrate a point. And the point is that Even though in my personal portfolio, I had about a 40% larger position in Yamana than I did in Goldfields. Even though I have more of the stock that's being taken over and therefore the stock that's going to get a premium, if you look at the combined value, market value of my positions on the day, the two combined were down about 8%. And that is very rare because normally... If you own more of the acquiree than the acquirer, since the acquiree is getting bought out at a premium, you're better off. 
but I was worse off because for some reason the market thinks that the combined value of both of these companies is actually worth less than what the companies are worth trading independently, which obviously makes no sense because if the management teams of both companies believed that by combining their companies they were destroying value they wouldn't be doing it see normally when you get two miners merging which is really what this is it's an all stock deal so it's more of a merger even though it was shareholders of Yamana that were enjoying the premium in the merger yet again despite my owning more shares of the company getting a premium I still ended up with a loss on the day as far as where the market is marking to market my holdings but normally what happens is when these companies get together the idea is there's a lot of synergies maybe they have a lot of mines that are in proximity to one another and maybe by combining forces they can be more efficient they can bring down their average cost of production they can get rid of some costs that maybe they have in common and so with cost reduction and other operating synergies normally two plus two doesn't equal four it equals five but as far as the market is concerned it equals three now I don't think the market really had a lot of time to dig through the numbers and to come to that conclusion I think this is just indicative of how bearish the market is when it comes to gold mining stocks pretty much any news even good news is considered bad news because normally a deal like this not only would have been a net winner for me with a larger position in Yamana than I have in Goldfields but it would have sparked rallies in the whole sector because when you have mergers and acquisitions it gets traders to start to think hey what's the next company that's going to get bought right there's activity there's potential buyouts and so a lot of times a lot of other stocks go up just because of the deal well in this case they went down and in fact maybe the fact that shares of Goldfields got clobbered so badly because they decided they want to buy another gold company maybe that may send a chilling effect throughout the whole industry if another company is thinking about buying another gold company maybe think twice because instead of rewarding you for creating synergies and economies to scale the market is going to punish you by selling your stock now personally I still think this is a great opportunity to buy in this sector maybe this had to do with the end of the month and closing out some positions I have no idea what triggered this degree of selling but I think it was a buying opportunity for people who are looking at these names and other names in the mining sector and this is particularly true given the backdrop of accelerating inflation that we are experiencing right now this is the perfect environment for gold stocks except gold stocks are not reacting to it the way they should because instead of seeing high inflation and thinking that they need a hedge they need to buy gold because of high inflation investors are reacting to high inflation by thinking they need to sell gold because they're convinced that the Federal Reserve is going to fight even harder to get rid of this high inflation and therefore that's going to do even more damage to the gold market and so naturally they're selling gold stocks but why do investors believe this they're being confronted with more and more evidence that inflation is getting worse yet they continue to expect the Fed to actually do something to bring the rate back down to two percent even though thus far they've done nothing but talk 
And it seems to me that the markets are still giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt. For some reason, they still have credibility. And even though it's obvious that inflation is getting worse, investors still expect it to come down for the only reason that the Fed claims that that's what it's going to do. Despite the fact that the Fed has a horrible track record of getting stuff right, and it's obvious, or at least it should be obvious, that the Fed is either lying about its intention to bring inflation down, or the Fed is just as incompetent with respect to its ability to bring inflation down as it was with respect to its ability to see that it wasn't transitory or any of the other major macro calls that the Fed got wrong. But I'm going to get back to inflation in a few minutes. I want to continue to talk about what happened to the markets during the month of May. And while yellow gold was having a tough time, black gold enjoyed a big rally up about 10% during the month. And in fact, it would have finished a lot stronger. Earlier this morning, the price of crude was above $119 a barrel. But then later in the day, there was some news that came out of OPEC that they were thinking about suspending Russia from its output quotas. And I guess it made traders believe that that might mean that Saudi Arabia may be able to pump more oil and therefore increase the supply. And the oil price gave up more than a $4 gain and went negative before clawing its way back by the close. We ended up back above 115 at 115.26, but that's still about 10% above where we ended the month of April, which was about 105. And by the way, that was where the price of oil was when President Biden announced that he was going to dump oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to lower the price. Well, we dumped a lot of oil, but the price didn't go down. It continued to go up. And so A, what that means is this strategic petroleum dump is ineffective at stopping the price of oil from going up. But it also highlights what a mistake this is because the oil that we sold is already more valuable and therefore would be more expensive if we needed to buy it back. You know, if we keep selling oil now, while there is no emergency, there isn't a shortage of oil. We're just paying higher prices. It's not like there's no oil there. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve is supposed to be there when we can't get the oil, when the only place we can get it is from this Strategic Reserve. But if we blow through the reserve to try to make Biden look better or the Democrats look better going into the midterm elections, what's going to happen if there is a genuine emergency and we've already depleted our emergency funds? You know, I mentioned on my last podcast that looking at the chart, I thought the price of oil was getting ready to explode. And in fact, based on what was happening earlier this morning, it looked like that was happening. Now we got a little bit of a setback, but I still think we're going to get a big move up because as of now, oil continues to be on the same trend line that it was on since the bottom in March of 2020, long before Putin invaded the Ukraine. So I don't think the price of oil today is any higher than it would have been even had Russia never invaded. I think we're on the same uptrend that we were tracking. And I think that's going to change because there's no doubt in my mind that not only is the war in Ukraine bullish for oil, but the sanctions against Russia are even more bullish. We should be climbing a uptrend that is significantly higher than the one we were on before. And I think we are going to spike up 
to a new level. And I think ultimately we're going to start to pay a big premium for these sanctions, I think sometime over the summer, so we can see maybe a 10 or $20 spike, get the price of oil above 130 which was that short-term spike in the immediate aftermath of the invasion. I think we can get above that level and then start trending up from there towards $150 a barrel and higher. And now we'll actually have an oil price shock. We'll actually be paying a Putin premium or maybe not a Putin premium, a Biden premium. Because while Putin made the decision to invade the Ukraine, Biden made the decision to impose the sanctions. And I think the sanctions are a more significant factor in being responsible for the increase in oil prices. Now, another interesting thing, though, about the month of May was weakness in the dollar. And despite a small rebound today, the dollar index was still down 1.2% on the month. In fact, this is the weakest month for the U.S. dollar index since May of 2021, so almost a year ago. And as the dollar fell, so too did yields on most treasury maturities. In fact, the yields on the five and 10-year treasuries slipped. However, the yield on a 30-year treasury rose on the month. So the yield curve widened. I think the reason for that is all the weak economic data that came out during the month of May. In fact, When it comes to macroeconomic data, this was the worst month, meaning that the data surprised the most to the downside since September of 2008. And if you recall, that's the month that Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, the depth of the 2008 financial crisis, and that's where you have to go. The middle of the greatest recession since the Great Depression to find economic data as bad as the data we just got in the month of May, while you have people like Fed Chair Powell and President Biden claiming that we have the strongest economy in history. In fact, the economy is so strong that it can withstand the Fed's inflation fight. Well, that is belied by the economic data. And I think that's why you saw the yield curve widen because investors are now starting to price in an end to the tightening cycle and a beginning of the easing cycle based on a weak economy. But where I think the markets have it wrong is they don't understand that even though they're correct, the economy is going to weaken, inflation is not going to come down. Inflation is actually going to get worse. And if the bond markets understood that, then bond prices would be crashing and long-term yields would be rising. The dollar would be falling much more and gold prices would be going through the roof. Now, eventually all this is going to happen. The question is, when are the markets going to figure it out? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's not enough just to create wealth. It's essential to protect your wealth from unforeseen lawsuits, creditors and predators, including your own government, seizing your assets because you support the wrong political party. Every year, more than 15 million lawsuits are filed in the United States. Many of these lawsuits are frivolous, using lawfare to try to enrich the suing party, knowing you're likely settle rather than incur the expense and aggravation. But imagine your hard-earned assets were held in legal structures that prevented these pesky lawsuits while denying creditors easy access to your assets. Remove the profit from the pursuit and most of these lawsuits will never happen. These days, having a sound and effective integrated estate planning and risk mitigation strategy is essential for affluent investors and business owners to secure their legacies. When total protection is wanted, and believe me, it's always wanted, reach out to Jeffrey Verdon and the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group. They've been protecting and securing client legacies for decades. But you must act now before a claim arises or asset protection will not work. So don't delay. Contact the law firm today for a consultation. Remember to mention my name and get 50% off on your initial consultation. With decades of experience assisting affluent investors and business owners in securing their legacies, my personal law firm, the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group, can make all the difference. In fact, they help structure a trust for me that completely avoids the estate tax. So all the assets in that trust pass on to my heirs estate tax-free. That's more for my family and less for Uncle Sam. So contact the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group by July 15th, mention my name, Peter Schiff, and you'll get a 50% discount off your initial consultation. That's jmvlaw.com. Now, getting back to the topic of inflation, as I've been saying, inflation is not a problem that's unique to America. Inflation is happening all around the world because every major central bank is making the same monetary policy mistake. In fact, every government is making the same fiscal policy mistake. And so the combination of loose fiscal and loose monetary policy is why everybody is suffering from inflation and why it's going to get much worse. But we got some really bad data so far this week coming out of Europe. First, yesterday, we got the German CPI up 8.7% year over year, much hotter than expected. In fact, that is the largest year over year increase in inflation in Germany in 60 years. Now, I'm not as familiar with the flaws in the German CPI as I am with the US CPI, but my guess would be that that index is also somewhat rigged. So the real increase in consumer prices in Germany is also probably higher than the official 8.7%. But 8.7% inflation is very high for Germany. Because remember, Germans were very anti-inflation because of their firsthand experience with the Weimar Republic. Now, obviously, the Germans who are alive today weren't alive back then, but a fear of inflation had been ingrained into the psyche of the German people and was certainly reflected in the Bundesbank and their commitment to making sure that hyperinflation never happened again in Germany. And they did a very good job. Before the formation of the European Union, 
Germany enjoyed one of the lowest inflation rates in the world since the end of the Second World War, a much lower inflation rate than the United States. That's why the German Deutschmark gained so much value relative to the U.S. dollar over the years because they had a more competent monetary policy. The central bank was not focused on employment and price stability. They had one objective, and that was the stability of the Deutschmark and to make sure that there was no inflation. And the Bundesbank did a very good job of that. So obviously, the Germans are not happy about what's happening right now. It clearly demonstrates the utter failure of the European Union. The idea was to create a single currency that would be the heir to the Deutschmark. Instead, they've created a currency that's the heir to the Italian lira or the Greek drachma, because of the moral hazard that is inherent in this new system. It's not like all the countries are now as fiscally responsible as Germany. It's just that they're now as profligate as Italy, and that is a huge problem. We got the official numbers for European Union inflation for the entire Eurozone, and they're not much better, up 8.1% year over year, For the Eurozone as a whole, that is a record. That is the highest year-over-year inflation since the Euro currency came into existence. Now, this is a record that is going to be broken again and again and again. But here is the question that nobody is asking. And I talked about this in an earlier podcast, but I want to bring it up again. Why is the European Central Bank still holding interest rates at zero? Why are they still doing quantitative easing when inflation is at an all-time record high? In fact, it is quadruple the 2% target. All of those press conferences, I remember when Mario Draghi was there and he kept saying that we need to get inflation close to but below 2%. That was their goal. The problem, according to Mario Draghi, was that the inflation rate in the Eurozone wasn't close enough to 2%. That he was determined to get it closer, but make sure it never got as high as 2%, just closer to 2% than it was. Now, why that was an important goal never made sense to me. I always said it was a lie. It wasn't a problem. It was an excuse to create more inflation. But what's happening now proves that I was right and Draghi was lying and all of the other economists and strategists and reporters were clueless because I was one of the only people that was calling Draghi out on his lies. And of course, I've been saying the same thing about Lagarde when she makes these ridiculous statements. But what's happening now proves that I was right. Because if the real purpose of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing was to get inflation to be closer to 2%. Now that it's four times higher than 2%, it's 8.1%. Why is that policy still in place? Clearly, it didn't work because they didn't want to get above 2%. They're miles above 2%. So if they had their foot on the gas pedal before, they should be slamming on the brakes right now. They should be in horror based on how much they overshot their target. They wanted inflation to stop at 1.9. We are at 8.1, yet they still have the pedal to the metal. They have not changed their monetary policy at all, even though their monetary policy should be the mirror image of what it was. Because if inflation was too low, but it wasn't close enough to 2%, 
What do you call it now when it's four times higher than 2%? Clearly, the ECB needs to bring inflation down. And you don't bring inflation down using the same monetary policy you used to bring it up. They need to dramatically increase interest rates. Not only do they need to stop quantitative easing right now, they need to begin quantitative tightening right now. They should have began it a long time ago, but they didn't do it. Why? Because the whole thing was a lie. The reason they're not fighting inflation now, the reason they're not raising interest rates and shrinking the balance sheet is the same reason they weren't doing it before when they were trying to pretend that the reason was they needed 2% inflation. It's because they're trying to maintain this system. They're trying to enable countries like Italy and Spain and Greece to keep on running big budget deficits and not have to deal with the consequences because they're worried that the European Union will disintegrate because these countries will not be willing to impose the type of austerity that would be necessary to keep their interest rates down in an environment where the ECB was acting responsibly. Now, I wish the ECB, for the sake of the Europeans, had some spine because ultimately when push comes to shove, maybe the Italians, maybe the Greeks, Maybe the Spanish, maybe they would make the right decision if their backs were to the wall, if somebody held their feet to the fire, but the ECB doesn't have the guts to do that. And so it's making it easier for those politicians to keep kicking the can down the road by monetizing their debt and claiming the reason they're doing it is that there's not enough inflation. Well, now that there's clearly much too much inflation and they're doing the exact same thing, it proves it was a lie. But at some point, they're going to have to give up this lie and start actually doing something to stop runaway inflation. Otherwise, it's going to be Germany that leaves the Eurozone. And of course, there is no Eurozone without Germany. Germany is the key. Without Germany, the whole thing falls apart. So I think the ECB is going to be forced to take this inflation threat far more seriously and in fact act to do something about it to a much greater degree than is the Federal Reserve because of the political pressure that's going to come to bear from Germany. Those monthly subscriptions really add up, and sometimes you don't even notice the monthly deductions coming out of your bank accounts. That's where Truebill comes in. It's a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot you had. On average, people are saving thousands a year by using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, Cancel the ones you don't, all from the app. And your True Bill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult confrontations. True Bill has helped over 2 million users save over $100 million. Like Becca L, who says, hands down, this is the best financial app I've ever discovered. In my first week, I opened up $187 in unused recurring subscriptions. Now I'm obsessed. I never want to manage finances without Truebill again. An extra bonus that's particularly helpful to me is anytime Truebill notices a charge that's unusually large, I immediately get a notification. Typically, those charges come from my wife, but now that she knows I'm keeping an eye on her spending, perhaps she'll spend a little less. So start canceling your unused subscriptions today at Truebill.com gold. Go right now, Truebill.com gold. It can save you hundreds of dollars a year.
But now I want to turn my attention back to the U.S. inflation problem because Joe Biden actually met with Jerome Powell today. And in fact, it followed an op-ed that was supposedly written by Joe Biden. But of course, Joe Biden didn't write it, right? I mean, his name was on it, but he couldn't write it. Obviously, somebody was paid to write it for him. But in this op-ed that was in the Wall Street Journal, he outlined this supposed three-part plan to fight inflation. Now, the main part of his plan literally was passing the buck to the Federal Reserve. Biden said it's the Fed's problem. The Fed is there to fight inflation and Biden is not going to interfere with the Federal Reserve. Basically, he talked about how President Trump was beating up on the Fed and preventing the Fed from doing its job and that Biden's not going to do that. It's going to be hands off. He is going to allow the Fed to be independent and solve this inflation problem. Now, first of all, it's not all about the Fed. I mean, personally, yes, I think the problem lies mainly with the Fed, but it also lies with Congress and the president because they are authorizing all the spending without sufficient tax revenue to pay for it. And they are issuing all these bonds. And it's those bonds that the Federal Reserve is monetizing And that is the source of the inflation. And also the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates artificially low in large part to enable the U.S. government to actually afford to service all the outstanding debt. So it takes two to tango. And so in this sense, for Biden to say, hey, it's all the Fed, that's really not true. But I think one of the main reasons that President Biden wants to put this ball in Powell's court is because when he drops it, Biden wants to blame Powell, meaning that when inflation doesn't get better, when inflation gets worse, Biden wants somebody else to blame other than Putin. And now he's in a position to blame Powell because after all, he said that inflation is the Fed's responsibility. And therefore, if inflation gets worse, it's not Biden's fault. It's the Fed's fault. It's Powell's fault. Although Biden reappointed Powell and Biden appointed some of the other people who are now on the FOMC. So the buck is supposed to stop with the president, but that's not going to stop him from trying to pass it. Now, I also think that based on the meeting that he had with Powell, Biden probably knows that even though Powell's going to talk tough about fighting inflation, he's not going to actually fight tough. He's not going to raise rates high enough to cause a recession. At least that's what President Biden hopes, and maybe that's what Powell still thinks. I think they're both in for a rude awakening, especially since we're probably already in a recession, and that recession may be officially acknowledged before the midterms, but Biden is certainly hoping that that's not the case. And if inflation does in fact get worse, he wants to blame Powell. Now, of course, if inflation gets better, he'll have no problem taking credit for that. And I'm sure he will take credit, but that's not likely to happen. Now, after the meeting with Powell concluded, Biden came out supposedly to talk to members of the press. It seemed like there are a lot of people gathered there. And so President Biden came out, basically made one statement, maybe read one line off a teleprompter and then abruptly left without taking a single question. I was very interested to hear his answers to whatever questions were allowed to be asked. And I was very disappointed when in typical Biden fashion, he left before a single question could be asked, let alone answered. But Biden did have something to write in his op-ed or whoever wrote that op-ed had other 
parts of a supposed three-pronged fight against inflation. Again, prong number one was letting the Fed take care of it. But part number two was Biden specifically claiming that he was going to do something to help reduce prices in America. One of the things he said was he's going to focus on making gas prices more affordable. Now, how's he going to do that when particular everything he's done so far since he's been sworn in was to make gas prices less affordable and more expensive. Remember, he's a big believer in the Green New Deal. That's all about making gasoline more expensive. That's part of this whole systemic risk of climate change that we've got to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. Well, what better way than to make fossil fuels more expensive? Because if they cost more, well, you'll use less of them and supposedly save the environment. So Biden has never been a proponent of cheap energy, but now all of a sudden that the voters are tired of expensive energy, all of a sudden Biden's going to do something to bring the cost down. One thing I think he talked about was Congress passing some clean energy tax credits. That's not going to work. I mean, what would work would be reducing regulations and taxation in the oil industry. But of course, if we're going to reduce taxation, the government needs to cut spending somewhere so that we don't run up the deficits and have to print even more money, which means even greater amounts of inflation. But nothing Biden laid out in his op-ed is going to lead to any increase in production of oil and gas, and it's not going to lead to any reduction in price. Now, he also promised to fix the supply chain. How the hell is he going to do that? The government's not going to fix anything. All the government does is break stuff. And when it tries to fix things, it breaks it more. He promised to improve the infrastructure. How? The free market is the best way to improve the infrastructure. What the government needs to do is get out of the way and allow the free market to function. Anything the government does is not going to improve. It's going to impede our infrastructure and make the problems worse. In fact, one particular problem that he focused on the op-ed was the so-called exorbitant fees that these foreign ocean freight companies were charging to move the products around. And supposedly he's going to do something to lower those fees. What's he going to do? I mean, the fees are being set in the market. It's supply and demand. They're not gouging. They're just pricing their product based on where the market is. Now, of course, one of the things that he mentioned is that these ocean freight liners are foreign owned, right? As if that's the bad thing, like, hey, these are foreigners sticking it to Americans. Well, why are all these ocean freight liners foreign flag? Why doesn't America have any of these ships? And that's because of our regulations, our unions, our taxation, we have destroyed the American maritime industry. Things like the Jones Act have actually backfired and made our maritime industry less efficient, less competitive, and therefore we rely on foreign ships to move all our stuff around, especially all this stuff that we're importing from the foreign countries that make all this stuff that's being loaded up on these foreign ships and brought to the United States. All of that is the problem. We need to make this stuff ourselves. That way it won't have to be put on a ship and sent to America. It'll already be in America at the point of production. But none of that is going to change based on anything that Biden is going to do. The reason we're in this position is because of all the stuff that Biden's been doing for decades as a U.S. congressman. And now he's doing the same thing as the president of the United States. Then he also wrote about how he wants to work on making housing more affordable. Well, the government makes housing more expensive. 
all of government housing programs have had the effect of making houses more expensive to construct and more expensive to buy. The only thing that they do is try to make it cheaper to borrow money to buy overpriced houses with artificially low interest rate, saddling homeowners with a bunch of debt. If the government got out of the way, and this is not just the federal government, I'm talking about state and local governments, they do a lot to make building affordable housing more expensive. And by the way, one of the worst things that the government did recently to kill the housing market was the moratorium on rents. By telling people during COVID that they didn't have to pay their rents and leaving landlords high and dry with taxes and utilities and mortgage payments, but no rental income, the government significantly increased the risk of being a landlord, particularly for low-income housing. And so there's now much less low-income housing available to rent. Landlords don't want to rent it out. They either want to keep it, they want to sell, maybe they want to Airbnb it to short-term rentals. They don't want to get into long-term leases because they're afraid that there'll be some future moratorium on rents and they're going to get stuck again. So as I predicted in real time, this has all backfired and made housing more expensive, not less expensive. Biden also said he wants to work on helping to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Well, one of the reasons that prescription drugs cost so much, in fact, the main reason is the U.S. government, FDA, all the unnecessary efficacy trials that the government makes these pharmaceutical companies run in order for people to be able to use a drug. It's the government that makes it so expensive to do research and development and introduce new drugs. And so if Biden really wanted to reduce the cost of drugs, he would roll back all the government regulations that are artificially increasing the price of drugs. Then he said he wants to do something about lowering child care costs, lowering elder care costs. Again, why does it cost so much to take care of kids and the elderly? The U.S. government and local and state governments, they have all kinds of labor laws and taxes and regulations and licensing requirements and all sorts of things that run up costs and restrict competition. Every time the government claims that something is too expensive, there is a government reason why it costs so much, especially when it comes to education. You know, Biden didn't mention this in his op-ed, but there's been a lot of talk again about forgiving college debt And ironically, a lot of the politicians like Elizabeth Warren, who are speaking the loudest about forgiving student debt, are also the ones complaining the most about inflation and, of course, blaming inflation on the private sector and greedy corporations and not accepting responsibility for helping create inflation herself. But again, the reason that forgiving student loans is inflationary is because you're taking money that students would have either repaid directly to the government or paid to lenders and you're freeing up that money to be spent on goods and services so that increased demand for goods and services will drive up prices it's the same thing as the government just printing up a bunch of money and handing it to people who have student debt so they can go out and spend it you're actually literally creating inflation as you're forgiving student loan debt. Now, maybe if you raise taxes on some people at the same time, you're forgiving the debts on other people. And I'm not talking about the rich who are going to save and invest the money. You have to raise taxes on other middle-class people who would have otherwise spent the money 
and then give it to people who have college loans to spend instead. But of course, nobody is talking about doing that, nor would anybody talk about that. They want to just forgive student loans as if it's free. Well, it's not free. It's going to come with a huge price tag and it's going to be paid by everybody through inflation. And so none of these politicians want to accept responsibility. In fact, none of these politicians want to accept responsibility for the student loan problem in the first place. I really wrote about this in my book, Crash Proof, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country. I devoted a whole chapter to the student loan problem and how it was created by government. The reason that students have so much debt is because the government made it possible. And because the government financed all this debt, that's what made it possible for colleges to charge so much money in the first place. In fact, in addition to being inflationary, there are so many other reasons why college loan debt forgiveness is one of the dumbest ideas the government has ever come up with. And believe me, they've come up with a lot of dumb ideas. So for this one to be one of the dumbest, well, that's a pretty high bar that we had to hurdle. Now, I don't want to spend this whole podcast on why student loan debt forgiveness is a bad thing. In fact, I think I've covered it in prior podcasts. But just to go over some of the quick talking points, apart from creating inflation, you have an enormous moral hazard the minute you forgive student debt. Because now other people who are taking on student debt will assume that their debt is going to be forgiven too. And you're going to run up a lot more debt if you're convinced you're not going to have to pay it off. The colleges are going to know that. They're going to be able to raise tuition even higher because the students who are borrowing money to pay it, if they know they're not actually going to have to pay the money back, well, then they're willing to borrow a lot more money than they otherwise would have been willing to borrow if they thought they were going to have to pay the money back. And therefore, colleges can charge a lot more money. But also what happens is a lot of people who might otherwise have paid for college, they had the money or they were willing to work their way through college, they're not going to do it. Why pay for college if there's a chance you're going to get it for free? So now you're going to have a lot of people who would have paid for college borrowing money instead. So the student loan problem is going to get much bigger because by forgiving student loans, you encourage a lot more people to take on student loans that otherwise might not have taken them on. And in fact, what also might happen is if you reduce the cost of college, which is what you're doing when you forgive student loans, you're going to get more demand for college. As price goes down, demand goes up. In fact, if college becomes free because all the debt gets forgiven, even more people are going to want to go. A lot more people are going to want to go to college even though they're not going to have any economic benefit from going to college. So not only will forgiving student loans mean that tuitions are going to go up even faster, you're also going to destroy the value of those degrees because as they're getting more expensive to get, they're less valuable to have because more people are going to be encouraged to get them based on debt forgiveness. And then, of course, the ultimate irony is that with so much college debt being added as a result of the debt forgiveness, then they're going to have to forgive even more debt in the future because they've made it an even bigger problem. And so all the other problems are just going to compound. But don't expect anyone in Washington, D.C. to ever understand this. In fact, it's quite possible that members of Congress are even more ignorant of economics than the public in general. It's because the public is so ignorant when it comes to basic economics 
that elected officials are able to buy their votes using their own money. But getting back to Biden's op-ed from the Wall Street Journal, the other point that he made was to blame rising gas prices on Putin, even though I've already explained again in today's podcast that oil prices are no higher since Putin invaded the Ukraine than they would have been had he not invaded the Ukraine based on the trajectory that oil prices were on before and after the invasion because they're climbing the same slope. Nothing has changed. Now, I think that's about to change, but I think the big spike that we're about to see in oil is not because of the Putin invasion, but because of the Biden sanctions. And finally, the third prong of Biden's three-pronged attack against inflation was the president's commitment to supposedly continue reducing the budget deficits. Now, I've talked about this before. Biden keeps boasting about being this big deficit cutter. He's significantly reduced the deficit. But that's only compared to this artificially inflated benchmark of what was going on during the depths of the COVID crisis when the deficits had skyrocketed temporarily. So to say that we've brought the deficits down relative to those high watermarks is disingenuous because what you have to do is look at the deficits today and compare them not to the deficits during the height of the COVID pandemic, but where the deficits were back in 2019 before we even had COVID. And of course, even then we had big deficits that were run up under Donald Trump. You can't simply continue those massive deficit spending and say that you're fighting inflation. Because as I pointed out when Donald Trump was president, Trump's policies were highly inflationary. It's just that there was a bigger lag between the increase in consumer prices and the increase in the money supply. And again, a lot of the inflation that was created under Trump made its way into the financial markets. That is over. The inflation is now all about consumer prices and it's going to stay in consumer prices. And so Biden can't continue to run massive deficits and claim that he's cut the budget deficits because they're smaller than they were at their peak when even before they rose to their peak, they were inflationary. The deficits that Biden is continuing are inflationary. He is proposing even more inflationary monetary policies as he's claiming to be reducing the deficit to fight inflation. We need massive cuts in government spending and or significant increases in middle-class taxes. I would certainly prefer the former. I would like to see lots of cuts in government spending, including defense. But in the meantime, we continue to increase defense spending, including additional aid to the Ukraine. So Biden claiming to be fighting inflation by cutting the deficits is a lie. He continues to fan the flames of inflation with reckless deficit spending. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about some of the economic data that came out earlier today. We have a lot more data coming out later in the week, including on Friday, the May non-farm payrolls report, otherwise known as the jobs report. We have yet to have a really weak jobs report. We've been getting horrible macroeconomic data all month long. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see some weak data finally coming into the jobs market. But it will be interesting to see how markets react to potential weakness in the one area of the economy that everybody thinks is still so strong. But for now, let me just focus on a couple of the data points that came out today. First, we got the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. We had 
prices up in the 20 cities. This is adjusted month over month. The increase was 2.4%. That was higher than the 2.2% expected. But the unadjusted number shot up by 3.1%. That was about double the 1.6% that had been expected. But the big number was the year-over-year unadjusted increase, 21.2% increase in home prices. I believe that that is a record, meaning that prices rose more this year than in any year during the big housing bubble that ultimately bust in 2007. But what is driving home prices higher? It is inflation. And just imagine if the government actually used home prices. These are prices that people are actually paying to buy a home. What if this number was in the CPI? Because this number was in the CPI back in the 1980s. So when they talk about that high inflation or in the 1970s, that high inflation included home prices. Today's high inflation does not include the home prices that people actually pay. It includes owner's equivalent rent, which is a price that nobody actually pays. Owner's equivalent rent didn't even exist in the 1970s and 1980s, but it exists now only to make inflation look much lower than it really is. But when you look at the actual numbers for the increase in the home price, that gives you a better reflection of reality. But of course, that doesn't tell the whole story because a year ago, before prices of houses went up by 21.2%, you could buy a house and take out a mortgage at 3.5%. Now, to pay 21.2% more for the house, you also have to pay 5.5% for the mortgage. And it's a much bigger mortgage because you bought a much more expensive house. Of course, the house itself isn't more expensive. It's the same house. It just has a bigger price tag due to inflation. And we also got the data from the Dallas Fed, their manufacturing survey for the month of May. It was supposed to come out at 2.6, and that would have been an improvement on the 1.1 from April. Well, instead of improving, we went the other way, and the index tanked to minus 7.3. That was well below the lower end of the consensus range, which was a positive 0.3, And it went all the way up to a positive 4.9. So minus 7.3, way below estimates, a terrible number. And this is about manufacturing. If you want lower inflation, what do you need? You need less money and more stuff. Well, we're getting more money and less stuff. And that's what the Dallas Manufacturing Survey shows. We're printing more and we're producing less That means inflation is going higher, not lower, and the economy is slipping into recession. This is stagflation on steroids. This is an inflationary depression. 